to the Animation Happy Hour, a podcast where we talk about breaking into the animation industry over a couple of drinks. All opinions and views expressed in this podcast are solely our own and are not representative of the companies for whom we work. My name is Katie. I'm Garrett. And I'm Ben. And we're all currently feature animators at Disney. So today we are drinking pipe wine oh, because we're talking OMG. about the pipeline. <laughs> Right? Pause for <laughs> pause for applause. Yeah. <laughs> Kudos again to Isabel, my girlfriend, for coming up with the drink. She's yeah, incredible. She's month. so good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, Very she's good. killing it. We maybe in the future we'll have her on as our featured mixologist and she can cover this one <laughs> because we're we're just being put to shame. So today we are going to be covering which animation job is right for you and this is the cg feature film animation edition so we're going to be talking about as far as like cg feature film animation goes you know we're talking about like the blue sky dreamworks you know pixar disney uh sony sort of films uh we're going to be covering the different steps with the pipeline for for that sort of thing um, so we're going to be covering everything from story, lighting, editorial, production management, etc. We have a lot of different things to cover here. And the reason we wanted to do this episode was be- because, you know, a lot of people are interested in working in animation, quote unquote. But, you know, to be honest, to, to work at a place like Disney or DreamWorks or wherever, it's really such a broad generalization. There are so many disciplines within just working in quote unquote animation. And we know the outside world thinks of everybody that works at one of these studios <laughs> as an animator, <laughs> but yep. that's not the case. There are a lot of different jobs and roles um, in each of these studios and you know, character animators or animators quote unquote only make up a very small percentage of those people so we're going to be covering everything there is um so we're going to go through those and uh, hopefully this is a valuable resource to you know kind of see where you fit in best just a quick disclaimer to say that this is going to be an extremely broad overview of the most common jobs you would see in a CG feature animation studio. Um, we do plan on covering each of these jobs in much more detail. Um, we actually are planning a future day in the life series where we'll talk to different artists in great detail about their jobs and what kind of their day-to-day looks like. So please stay tuned for that. Uh, But for now, we're going to structure this episode by listing each job in a linear order, reflecting how the pipeline actually works in a feature film studio. But we do want to note that working on a feature film, it's never truly linear. There's a ton of back and forth and changes that happen across and between departments all the time. Um, I also wanted to give a disclaimer that The CG pipeline does vary a little bit studio to studio, uh, but for the most part, they're all pretty similar. And that's and we're going to try to kind of cover the broad CG pipeline in general. So what does that mean? It means that today we are covering storyboarding, production, editorial, visual development slash concept art, modeling, rigging, surfacing, look dev, layout, character animation, crowds animation, (laughs) character effects, tech anim, effects. General TDs, map painting, lighting, compositing, image finaling, and sound design. 
That's good too many jobs, gracious. guys. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we I shouldn't can't. do this episode. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's call it quits. <laughs> yeah. So first, we're going to talk about development. Um, and this is kind of a weird one to start with because it's not necessarily a job that you apply for, but it's very much the first step of the pipeline. Um, because generally, the folks that work in development are the directors and the production staff that support the directors kind of in their research and brainstorming phase. Um, so that could be production management people, um, secretaries, uh, and development executives. So not you wouldn't necessarily see entry-level positions offered in development um, or even job listings in development because um, people might kind of be groomed to go into that department coming from a producing background um, or something like that. So this is the very first step of the process when directors and development executives research slash brainstorm their ideas for a film and finalize the script. And depending on the studio, they might develop an original idea internally or work on developing an outside pitch script or concept like a children's book or comic book. So generally, these people have good uh, research skills. There are people who are very knowledgeable about film, film language, different genres and such, you know, have to have a very good general knowledge because development can really be anything, you know, any type of film um, need to know about, you know, your Westerns, your sci-fi, everything, you know, just a couple examples. And trends, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Trends. Kind of, yeah. you know, have a, yeah, exactly. Kind of have the pulse on what's, you know, going on right now and what what will be very marketable two, three years from now or even more. So it, it can be uh, very challenging in that regard, for sure. Um, aside from that, uh, that definitely good soft skills are super valuable as a, you know, working in the development stage of a movie, you're probably going to be interacting with people very high up in the studio and kind of all over. You'll be talking to directors, heads of studios, you know, uh, producers, executive producers, development, or obviously development people, because you'll be one of them. (laughs) Also like, um, you know, viz dev people, stuff like that. You might also be talking to people even further down the uh, pipeline because they, you know, you'll kind of want to have a, uh, a pulse on maybe how much things will cost down the line too. Mm -hmm. So talking with those people. So it's really this, this broad knowledge you have to have and you have to be able to talk to a, a variety of different people. Um, aside from that, you have to be able to facilitate the creative process and kind of provide guidance structure and research assistance. So, you know, all that is, you know, it sounds very general because it is very general. <laughs> you know, it could be, these are just, I feel like overall, very creative, smart, intelligent, um, you know, people that are easy to work with and curious about a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because there's a huge difference between Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse versus Trolls World Tour versus, you know, any number of movies out there. So, you know, if you're working in development, you have to kind of be able to handle all those different things. Some quick fun facts about development. Um, And a lot of these facts are probably fairly specific to Disney, but I imagine they might cross to other studios as well. Um, Generally, development's a very small department. You might just have a handful of development executives working alongside uh, directors. So it could, you know, be a department of five to 15 people. 
Um, for Disney, at least, I know they have the very sexy responsibility of organizing and going on research trips. So if you're working <laughs> on a movie like Zootopia, maybe um, the development executives there handled the job of organizing the safari trips that they went on and then got to go. So that's a pretty nice perk. At Disney, at least, uh, where directors develop original concepts, the development team is also in charge of kind of researching and keeping a pulse on who the hot writers are um, around the industry. And they'll actually hire and attach writers to write a script for our original concepts. Um, and this is kind of a funny thing. Development is probably the most secretive department. Um, projects don't really come to life for five to 10 years. So everything that development works on is kept very close to the vest. Um, and even the floor that development works on is forbidden to <laughs> guests in our building and that kind That's of crazy. thing. Yeah. Um, the last fun fact we have here is that development at a big company like Disney or Pixar, they work very close closely with corporate, um, pitching their ideas, and ultimately greenlighting a project. So next, we're going to take it away with storyboard artists. Um, the Explain Like I'm Five uh, for storyboard artists is basically storyboard artists interpret the script into a visual format. So they will take a look at the script and get assigned um, you know, a sequence, and then they'll make drawings that turn the words into a visual story. I like to think to make it kind of a simple explanation that it's like a comic book representation, but Isabel, my girlfriend, would be mad at me for cringe. <laughs> she does not like that. She she says it's more of a blueprint of the movie. Um, mm. And I think because a comic book has a different connotation, but uh, they'll also pitch, storyboard artists will pitch their ideas in a room with the directors and other storyboard artists for feedback. And um, yeah, they're really early on in the process and working with development and writers to get the film started. So, Ben, what type of people would be interested in story? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. But you, of all people, should know because you're dating one. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, so, a storyboard artist, uh, possibly first and foremost, they must enjoy drawing. You are drawing every day, all day, um, except for when you're pitching. But really, um, you know, this is when you're the movie's coming together for the first time, and it's all through literally drawings in photo Photoshop or Storyboard Pro or something like that. But uh, So you have to be comfortable with doing that all the time. Aside from that, a good working knowledge of cinematography, film language, pretty much everything related to film. Be able to talk about <laughs> the nitty-gritty of camera work in a particular shot and also character arcs and you know high level stuff where you know the three act structure of most mm -hmm. films and stuff you you kind of have to be a generalist in that sense because you are crafting the film from from the start you know just through your drawings so you have to know all that stuff on top of that um acting skills are, can be really important and to be able to you know Essentially, like we said, you're it's providing a blueprint for the film. So you have to be able to show what characters are feeling at any particular point in time in the movie and be able to convey that through your drawings. Um, it's also great to be able to be interested or able to improv a little bit to improvise because a lot of times um, storyboard artists are asked to they might be given very specific um, 
instructions on a particular sequence or shot, but other times it's very loosey-goosey and they'll just say, hey, we want this to be funnier or take this, we want it to be really intense and you have to be able to take that and run with it. So definitely able to come up with your own ideas is a huge part of of, uh, your responsibility as well. And then the last thing we have written down here is your ability to iterate extensively. And this is something we will continue to say for a lot of the other professions, but mm-hmm. definitely with storyboard artists, it's an absolute must. Um, there has never, I'm just going to say that. I know you're not supposed to say never, but <laughs> there, I would say there has never been a movie that was just storyboarded once. And then that was the final movie that hit the screen. Usually, uh, movies go through countless different iterations and are storyboarded a million different times, especially in the feature film world. Um, So you have to be comfortable with, you know, storyboarding the same sequence multiple different ways or totally throwing out your work and starting anew. So that's absolutely integral as well. Yeah, I think on Wreck-It Ralph 2, since I was story PA, I remember that we ended up with a crazy final count of number of boards, which was like in the hundreds of thousands for the number of storyboards our team produced. So yeah, you have to want to draw a lot and be flexible and willing to throw away work and start again, (laughs) for sure. Um, Moving on to our third section, the fun facts of storyboarding. Um, This is, again, another pretty small department. There's usually just a handful of storyboarders on a film. Um, I think the max a story team might hit is like 20 to 25 people, and it could be as small as five to 10 people. Um, Storyboarding is definitely a team sport. Like at a place like Disney, when you pitch your boards, the entire story team is in there and everyone can kind of throw out ideas um, and help sort of elevate and plus the story. Um, As a disciplined story can certainly be very competitive to get into um, because, yeah, it's kind of a smaller department and it does really require like a very strong knowledge of film um, and strong drawing skills, which not everybody has. Story is a department that's not generally outsourced as much as some other departments. Like generally storyboarders work very closely with the director and a lot of the story boarding is done kind of in-house. So that's something to keep in mind if you're someone who prefers to work remotely or you're international. Um, This is a fun one. Stories generally compensated very well because it is a competitive job. (laughs) Um, And it's something that people have to be kind of highly specialized and skilled for. I think it's interesting because storyboard artists, I think there's a lot of parallels between story and animation, except story artists think bigger picture versus animators thinking very micro and this comes mm-hmm. up a lot because like you know in Isabel's day-to-day she'll be thinking like you know what shot choices can I make to make this character feel scared or isolated so like oh should I do like a lot of high angle shots looking down on the character or whatever mm-hmm. whereas I feel like my day-to-day is like what brow shape will convey cautious optimism or like (laughs) what degree of like the mouth corner going up is the right form of happy for a character. So I just think it's funny. Like it's all revolving around story, but it's just high level versus really granular. Um, Very good point. Yeah. All right. So next we're going to talk about visual development artists slash concept artists. Um, Viz dev artists kind of work simultaneously to storyboard artists in the pipeline. 
And um, basically the 5,000 foot view for this, the general explanation is that you are the people who kind of start visualizing the more specific aspects of the film. So uh, this could encompass uh, background artists. It could, you know, be doing environment design. It could be character design and and uh, could also be props and stuff. It's basically the whole look of the film. So, you know, everything you you see when you watch a movie was he was initially conjured up or rendered or drawn by a someone who worked in visual development. Yeah, absolutely. And you might enjoy uh, being a visual development artist if you enjoy drawing and painting. I mean, that's the number one thing you're doing um, day to day. So uh, you definitely have to enjoy doing that. And in addition to that, you have to enjoy or be able to iterate extensively. And that kind of applies to a lot of other jobs, but nonetheless, it's still important for VizDev. And you also have to have a good knowledge of color theory, shape language, and um, just establishing tone with color and, and all sorts of stuff like that. So, uh, yeah. Fun facts for VizDev. Um, there's usually, again, just a small handful of visual development artists on a film. Um, I feel like our visual development department at Disney is under 30 people for sure, maybe even under 20. Um, and for that reason, it is a very, very competitive field to get into. Not only is the visual development team usually pretty small, but I think as one of the parts of the pipeline, it's also one discipline that has the lowest barrier of entry because you kind of need general art training and familiarity with Photoshop and digital painting illustration, which is something that um, can be kind of self-taught or learned slightly more easily. I hesitate to say easily, but but generally you don't have to go as crazy learning like a new software um, like you would with like effects or CG animation or something like that. So it is an extremely competitive field. And I would argue it might even have the most applicants of any of the disciplines we're going to mention today. That's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like so many people get into, I feel like I whistled there. So many people (laughs) get into animation because they, they just love how it looks. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it is a super competitive field and, And I would agree that the applicants versus working professionals ratio is insane. I mean, Mm -hmm. to give you some context, um, and I don't say this to be um, uh, discouraging to to anybody, but, you know, if you look at like all the Ice Age movies, character design fits kind of within visual development. Mm -hmm. And the Ice Age movies essentially had one character designer, (laughs) Peter DeSev, for like all of them, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's... We say that just to um, prepare people to know the realities of if you're interested in this, there's a ton of people who want to do it in very few positions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, one character designer can move between films and even between studios, sometimes mm. kind of working various freelance gigs, project to project. Um, so the work is definitely limited and extremely competitive. Yeah, maybe this is something you guys would know. I was always curious about this for VizDev artists, but um, does a VizDev dev artist need to be kind of like a chameleon with their style where they can do a lot of different styles? Or do you guys think it's important to have your own voice and kind of stick to a consistent style? Because I, I feel like I don't as an animator, you know, we have to be able to animate, you know, like comedy and, mm-hmm. and uh, drama. And we definitely have our specialties. But I wonder if that's important for a VizDev artist because there's so few 
But I, I don't know. I was I was that's curious a, about that. It's a really good question. I don't know because we talk about this every now and then, and we think like, like if you take a Corey Loftus, it seems like he can do pretty much whatever. Like he did some really realistic stuff, you know. He did some super cartoony stuff, but then there are people who I'm thinking of some of the VizDev artists like Leica, who had like very distinct styles, yeah. and you know, like a. Uh, Heidi uh, Smith. Yes, Heidi Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she has a very distinct style, and and they wanted that with her. So I don't know. And yeah, honestly, I both. I think it can be like both. Yeah, some people will be hired onto a film just because they have a very specific style, and then some mm-hmm. people will be hired just because they're kind of a jack of all trades and can do anything. So yeah, it's really tough to say. It's good. Yeah, I agree. I think versatility doesn't hurt because, sure. like, if you're an environment designer, you might get assigned one day to design Holland, which is like a completely abstract location. Or you might get assigned (laughs) to design like the video game Heroes Duty in Wreck-It Ralph 2, which is like a very specific thing. So um, definitely you have to be flexible and versatile um, and able to conquer different things. The next department in the pipeline is the editorial department. Um, and generally, the editorial department is comprised of editors who compile all of the footage into one master cut that the directors use to continually, excuse me, to continually evaluate the movie. <laughs> um, they will take, you know, storyboards or existing animation, whatever is kind of the latest cut of a shot or sequence and edit that into the movie. Um, They are in charge of all of the voice records, so it's a pretty sexy part of the job. They get to work with the celebrity (laughs) voice talent. It's getting (laughs) sexier. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And they also... (laughs) They will also kind of bring sight and sound together. So in in addition to editing in dialogue, they will also edit in temp music um, and scratch dialogue early on in the film. So editorial, they work with every department throughout the entire pipeline because they're constantly trying to edit the latest cut of the film. Um, And that's kind of where the movie lives throughout the entire animation process. Unlike live action, editing is involved throughout the entire animation pipeline they are involved beginning with story through the very end through sound design so i know in live action film like generally you don't really start editing until everything has already been shot that's right and if you are interested in becoming an editor it is very likely that you are organized and creative (laughs) you are super detail oriented but also you're able to see the big picture you're able to see the forest and the trees if you will (laughs) You're knowledgeable. You have a great working knowledge of cinematography and film language. And you are also, as we said with story before, comfortable iterating. All right. So fun facts about editors. Um, like Katie mentioned, uh, if you're an editor working in animation, you're likely to be involved earlier in the process than in like live action. Because yeah, in live action, typically the, the thing gets filmed and then you're done. At, you're, you're doing your thing at the final stage. And in animation, you're basically involved from the beginning. And as a result, the workload is pretty, it can be pretty intense because you're constantly putting together clips, the latest clips from every department for screenings and stuff. So it can be a intense workload for sure. Um, And uh, you're also 
working very closely with the directors throughout the process. You're constantly, you know, coming up with uh, cuts to show the directors and they're analyzing it and they're, you know, making tweaks. And, you know, in animation, we might uh, add 10 frames because we think, oh, we need this performance thing. And then now it makes your life a living hell because you're like, (laughs) okay, I have to like now add these like 10 frames here. And yeah, so it's, it's tricky. Um, um, but it's nevertheless a very important part of the, uh, of the process. And one thing that I find really interesting about editing is if you do your job well as an editor, um, like no one really notices it. So no one really, like it's rare you see a movie and someone's like, wow, the editing was really good on that movie because it's, if, if they don't notice it, that means you've done a good job. But if you've done a bad job, they'll be like, I was confused with the kind of cuts and, and stuff like that. So, I find that interesting. And actually, that applies to a lot of jobs in animation. Like when you do your job well, no one notices. I'll give a couple of anecdotes about a couple of the points you just mentioned, like the crunch not ending. Um, I remember assisting with editorial that our head editor like literally didn't have a day off for like four weeks at a time. And we like legally were obligated to give him a single day off like every four weeks or so or something. So he would get his like one day off occasionally. It's insane. But because of that, I will say they're generally very well compensated. Yeah. Especially Mm -hmm. the the head editor on a feature film. It's because they're basically a director. You know, Mm -hmm. they're they're making decisions about everything in the movie, you know, like, you know, where these shots cut, how long this is, you know, every, <laughs> those were just two very basic things, but really they touch everything yeah. in the movie. So they're about as close to the director as you can get. So yeah. Yeah. Super they're hard hugely work, involved with the pacing. Yeah. Um, they can definitely be the difference between a joke working or not working because of the timing and uh, just anything like that. So remember back when we were talking about how VizDev artists design all of the assets in a movie in 2D or drawing form? Well, those drawings need to become CG at some point, and that is the job of CG modelers. So modelers construct the digital versions of everything that is seen on screen in an animated film, from characters, environments, props, all that stuff. And they basically take the 2D drawings and designs that the VizDev artists uh, work on, and then they sculpt them in CG software to make them 3D. So for instance, like Frozen, if we're we're using that as an example, you know, Anna and Elsa were designed in 2D uh, as 2D drawings, and then the CG modelers basically sculpted those characters in CG so that later the riggers and the animators could work on them because we're making CG films after all. Um, So that can apply to environments, characters, props, like I said. And uh, yeah, it's kind of what they do. So modelers, the type of person and the kind of the skill set that they usually have, they're extremely artistic. They're able to match and work off of the 2D vis dev designs that they're given, and they can kind of extrapolate and elaborate where necessary. So usually, you know, for a character, they might only be given a quarter or a three quarter view, a profile view, a front view, back view. Um, But they have to make sure that that character looks good from 360 degrees, literally any and every camera angle that that character would be shot at it has to look good Um, they are also technical so they have to make sure that they are keeping an eye on the edge flow that they're optimizing the geo and making sure that the vertex count is reasonable or the quad count 
Um, and they also, lastly, uh, have a very in-depth knowledge of anatomy. Often they are probably very familiar with muscles and um, kind of <laughs> what sort of muscular system um a character might have, whether it's a creature um, or a human or whatever the film calls for. Yeah, that's a good point. And, uh, you know, just to extrapolate on that, they probably need to know a lot about just about everything, too. Like if you're going to be designing a building or something, Mm -hmm. they have to know, you know, all that stuff. Or or if they're doing trees and foliage, you might have to learn about that. So a good, uh, curious person might be a good modeler as well. And uh, as far as additional fun facts, um, when you're working in modeling, you probably work most closely with VizDev and rigging. Um, you're kind yeah. of going back and forth with, you know, as we said, your your basic responsibility is interpreting 2D designs into the 3D world. So, and as we all know, a lot of times things do not interpret the way you think they would with, you know, certain designs. Mm-hmm. And, and then all of a sudden when you have them in 3D, it's like, oh, wow, that's way more unappealing than than it looks on on the paper. So you have to make adjustments. So a lot of the job is that sort of thing where you have to kind of go back and forth with, with a designer and figure out the best compromises for, you know, getting that whatever 2D appeal there was into the 3D world. And then also you're going to be um, interacting with rigging a lot. Like Katie said, you have to worry about the technical side of, you know, edge flow, edge flow, optimizing the geo and, you know, making sure you have enough topology so it looks great, but not so much that it's super heavy and nobody can use it because it takes so much computing power. So there's a lot of that involved as well. So the next step in the process is rigging. So for the quick layman's explanation, um, in rigging, you're taking the 3D model and putting the parts in the character that will later be animated. Um, to make an analogy or a simile, it's kind of like a, a mechanic versus a driver is like a rigger versus an animator, whereas the rigger is the mechanic, the animator is the driver. That's so you're cool. kind of doing all the things under the hood uh, to make the 3D model animatable, per se. So uh, riggers create digital skeletons for 3D uh, CG characters. These skeletons or rigs are like puppets that define the movements of a character or creature. Uh, it could be anything like uh, how a big cat runs or how a person's face m- moves or how a, they might raise an eyebrow. Uh, can really be anything. So riggers often have to have an in-depth knowledge of, you know, anatomy and, you know, a number of things. Awesome. And if you understand what riggers are now and you're not in animation, congratulations, because that is a very, like, I feel like no one knows what riggers are. I try to explain (laughs) to people what a rigger does. Yeah. uh, It never goes well. It's funny because it's like... one of the most important parts of <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. you know, steps in the pipeline, Absolutely. but like, you know, so few people know about it. So you might enjoy rigging if you are, if you appreciate both the technical and artistic challenges that present itself with rigging, because um, that certainly plays a part, especially when it comes to matching anatomy. And um, specifically, I'm remembering movies that I was on where there was uh, bird characters. And I remember the rigger, I'm thinking of Larrikins and, Jared Snover was this uh, the rigger responsible for doing the feathers on the wings and and oh, he cool. like studied mm-hmm. reference and tried to like analyze 
how exactly it attaches to the skin, the feathers, and like what happens when the the bird folds and like what happens to the deformations on the skin and the feathers. So Mm -hmm. basically being able to apply real world, real world um, anatomy uh, in a 3D context is really important. Um, Some scripting skills may be required too. Um, actually definitely will be required if you're a rigger. And in general, just being a good problem solver. That's a very important thing as well. Fun facts about riggers, um, they generally work extremely closely with animation, modeling, and viz dev. There's tons of back and forth trying to get the characters um, to kind of the best quality that they possibly could be. So after the first rig, maybe an animator does a quick test, and then they realize that when they bend something or pose something a certain way, the deformations get weird, so then the rigger would hop back in um, and possibly even work with modeling to try to get things looking more appealing and more on model. Um, And they might even have to make specialized setups or rigs for specific shots or scenes. So maybe you have a movie like Moana where there's a lot of rope animation and she's animating or she's uh, acting on a boat and the boat is swaying on the water. So in that context, a rigger might build a specific rig for the boat and they might also... Um, within that, build a setup for the sail and the ropes attached to that sail. So you can kind of expect unique challenges depending on the films that you're going to work on. I have a stupid story, but I don't know if it's even worth talking about. Do it. Uh, Uh, It's worth it. I'll just do it. Fine. (laughs) I remember when I was at DreamWorks, I was doing a lot of rig wrecking, which basically means testing the rigs and... um, a lot of times that was like obvious rig issues like, oh, if you move the arm up and the, the chest will explode, I would write that on a document and then they would like fix that. But mm-hmm. sometimes there was opportunities where I could add creative notes <laughs> and I was like, ooh, maybe if I add something really cool and spicy, they'll promote me <laughs> and I'll be cool and really valued. Yeah. <laughs> And I remember, this is so stupid, oh my God, but um, there was this dingo character and for some reason I thought that dingo character needs to have like really pronounced shoulder blades, kind of like a panther when it's walking. I was like, that would be really cool. But a panther is a panther, like there's no reason a dingo has that. But anyways, I wrote on the doc, I was like, oh yeah, you should have some more pronounced shoulder blades on the dingo. And I remember the head rigger, Kevin Oaks, got it. And uh, <laughs> called me up and was basically like, Garrett, a dingo is a canine and not a feline. So that's not the correct de- uh, deformation. <laughs> so I'm not going to apply that note. That's and awesome. I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, I was like, I'm so sorry. But I guess the point of that story is like the riggers really have a good knowledge of anatomy and or maybe it's just that i have zero knowledge of it i don't know what the (laughs) no that's why you're an animator not (laughs) (laughs) exactly jk you know i love that story because uh it really does show that you know riggers do have to have a good knowledge of what they're Mm -hmm. doing you know it's not about like what garrett was saying like yeah a panther looks cool but it's not (laughs) built the same way as a dingo so it's not just making something look cool it's understanding the you know working mechanisms of a specific of a particular prop or character or animal and that is awesome so like yeah you know, one of the riggers at dreamworks uh evan is it <laughs> i i feel so embarrassed i don't know how to pronounce his last name boucher I, or 
Boutier, Boucher, whatever. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> Evan, I'm we're so like sorry. good friends too. But I realize that I've never said his last name now. <laughs> but uh, he's like one of the most intense, like animal fans I know. And I thought I was a big animal fan, but it's so cool that he just he's has so passionate such, about it. Yes, he has such an in-depth knowledge of different creatures and dinosaurs and modern day animals and you know directly puts those into his work and you know makes the character i think dreamworks does some of the best creature animation out there and i think it's because of people like evan yeah who really know their stuff and are able to say like okay so this dragon is kind of like a chicken mixed with a bird mixed with this and he is able to interpret that into putting the controls into the character Mm -hmm. to allow them to move a certain way which is incredible and I'm, I'm so humbled by by their knowledge both of the technical and artistic side of things it's it's amazing the next part of the pipeline is the surfacing and look dev department um, and for the beginning kind of layman's explanation of this department um, generally look dev artists will sort of define how different surfaces and elements react to light and appear on the screen so another way to think about this is what is something made of is it made of skin is is it made of fabric? Is it made of metal? Um, that kind of thing. Um, and they will also be actively interpreting 2D designs from VizDev. They'll definitely look up reference material. So if they're looking up the costume for Moana, maybe they're looking up Polynesian grasses and that sort of thing. And they're generally um, sort of taking artistic direction and translating that into 3D textures and surfacing. Well said. Nice. <laughs> Thank <So> you. <laughs> if you are interested in being a surfacing slash look dev person, artist, I guess I should say, <laughs> you should be a mix of both technical and artistic. Um, in addition to that, you should be able to study and replicate real world materials. And then, but in addition to that, you should also be able to imagine fictional materials. Like if you have a character that, okay, this is like a I don't know, godlike being made out of some sort of plasma or something. That's the first thing I thought of, a plasma <laughs> god. I don't know why. <laughs> but yeah, as we know, animation doesn't deal with only what is real life. So you have to be able to, you know, be very artistic and imagine new things too and make them look real. And then also you have to have a good knowledge of light and color theory. Since there's a lot of overlap between your department and the lighting department, you have to see not only like, what color this is, but how it's going to show on camera when it's exposed to different lights and, you know, things like that. So um, probably have to be a good, you know, very good artistic, you know, almost painterly eye in mm-hmm. that in that sense as well. Yeah, it is a cool balance between like artistic and technical, which is why I feel like this job could be super appealing to people who are interested in both those things. And some fun facts about uh, surfacing and look dev artists are they're probably working closely most closely with uh, visual development artists because the mm-hmm. VizDev artists are going to be defining sort of like how things look, like whether it's like if Ben was saying like the godlike plasma, the VizDev artist. Oh, yeah, the plasma that. god. Yeah, <laughs> the plasma god. We're yeah. going to go with that. <laughs> and maybe, you know, they maybe they drew I'm imagining like kind of like the surface of the sun, like, you know, on the character. And then the surface <laughs> artist looks at that and is like, how the F am I supposed to make this into CG? Do That's I have to what do they a fluid say every sim? time. How the F? Yeah, what yeah. the F? <laughs> yeah. Um, why did this person design it though? <laughs> um, no, but 
uh, that's yeah. So they're going to be kind of going doing a back and forth between the VizDev artists and um, making sure that the original intent is preserved, um, as well as of course talking to the director and making sure because sometimes like the translation from 2D to CG is a challenge. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. really go the way you expect. So um, that I'm sure that's a that's a fun challenge, but just worth noting. Yeah, you know what in in. Just to jump on the train of uh, different departments you might work with, there might be just a tiny bit of overlap with animation, too. Because animation, a lot of times we really want to, like, push and pull things. So you might say, like, okay, on this frame, I really want to have a crazy stretch frame of this arm. And a lot of times it's actually servicing and look dev you would have to check with to see, like, okay, if I really stretch this or if I scale it up here, Mm -hmm. is the surfacing built to handle that? Or is it going to, like, totally break the texture so it's going to look really weird to camera? So there's a, you know, like Garrett said, it's it's not as much uh, overlap with animation as those other departments, but there's a tiny bit for sure. Yeah, and certainly a lot of interactivity with lighting because they're definitely actively deciding how things are going to either reflect or absorb light. Um, Good point. You know, depending on what color something is, it might only absorb certain color wavelengths and that kind of thing. So lots of interaction there. Um, And kind of a fun like little anecdote for an example of something that a look dev department might work on. This is something that my sister actually really loves because she is a chef and um, she took a lot of or she super appreciated that in Ratatouille, the chef characters in kind of their skin look dev actually had burns on their arms, which tons of chefs oh go my through. Gosh. So my <laughs> That's sister so cool. like super noticed that detail that um, some look dev artists put in to actually like paint burns onto kind of the skin and the, what do they call it? That wrap that you put on a character UV map. the uv map oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you like in painting burnt skin on the yeah. flesh of those characters you might like i know that that's a pretty specific like <laughs> no it's cool though, yeah. Details. yeah and it, i mean it definitely would extend to something like freckles on a character's face or yeah um even the Toothlesses, like yeah. scales and stuff I Total- mean, yeah oh, that's another great dragon, example yeah it could be like anything it's really mm-hmm. cool oh my gosh now i want to be <laughs> I'm so excited. Yeah, about that's it. right. So that brings us to the layout department. And uh, just to give a simplified explanation of what layout artists do, um, this is the step between storyboards and animation. It's kind of where the 2D boards are first interpreted into a CG environment, because obviously when you see the boards, there's no depth in the panels, right? So this, the layout artists have to sort of interpret the depth and make it work in a CG environment. Um, so characters, environments, and models are given depth and placed in a way that satisfies the director's and the storyboard artist's intent. Um, and there's sort of two kind of distinctions in layout. There's the rough layout, which is what I just talked about. Um, it's interpreting the boards into CG. And then there's final layout, which is preparation for uh, animation and final composition. So that's stuff like, you know, if the animator has done his thing, his or her thing, the final layout might do a pass at the camera to really finesse it, make it look good, in addition to a stereo pass to make everything work in in uh, 3D. So um, there's a lot to this, but that's sort of the simplified explanation of what layout artists do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the type of person or skill set that a layout artist would likely have is 
They generally have a very, very strong knowledge of cinematography and film language. So they absolutely know like what a Dutch angle is, for example, or a wide shot, mid shot, etc. Um, and you can kind of think of them as a 3D storyboarder um, because like Garrett said, they're generally interpreting the storyboards and bringing them into 3D film. Um, and they're also <laughs> going to have to iterate extensively Um if you actually take a look at the documentary series Into the Unknown, at one point they actually interview um, a layout artist. And in his scene, he has like 20 different cameras as he's trying to figure out how to do one shot um, and what's yeah. kind of the I, best I shot for that. that. Yeah. Um, so within that, they also have a very strong knowledge of how a camera works and like what... Um, depth of field they want, what type of lens they want to use. So super strong knowledge of how cameras work um, because cameras in CG are actually very similar or completely the same as cameras in live action. Um, and lastly, they have a very good sense of timing, movement, and composition. So they are also going to help with the pacing. They are going to be in charge of camera moves and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, they figure out how to tell the story through the camera. That's right. Yeah. All well said. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, just some uh, fun facts or miscellaneous info about layout artists is generally they work most closely with editorial animation and the story departments. Um, and, you know, editorial, that's kind of self-explanatory. Basically, everybody works with editorial. <laughs> where, but with layout in particular, you're really deciding how long individual shots are. And, you know, you know, like Katie said, you're setting up the official cameras and everything. So it's very important for establishing the final look of the film. And uh, with story, like Katie said, you're interpreting their, their boards. So there, a lot of uh, collaboration there is very important. And then with animation... That's kind of like the final, final camera, you know, so you have to work very closely with the animators in that regard. And uh, as we as we all know, in animation, if the camera is tweaked just slightly, it means you have to like sometimes totally redo your mm -hmm. animation or rework it. So it's very important that there's a very uh, good working relationship between layout and animation. And I should say kind of a you know, we've said before that, you know, uh, layout artists are kind of like 3D storyboarders. And, you know, that's true. And I should say that at every part of the pro every step of the process in the pipeline, everybody's trying to plus things, right? So a lot of times, mm -hmm. if, like if there's a really dynamic sequence, uh, it could look really cool in the boards, but the layout artist is trying to like, make that even cooler and, and more dynamic and, and, you know, directing your eye through the screen and mm -hmm. they're taking advantage with working with different, uh, focal lengths and lenses and, and, uh, different timings and, and cool camera moves. So uh, it can be a really cool dynamic department for sure. Uh, I, I imagine you have to be a, a really good storyteller in general yeah. to, to work in layout. Yeah, I kind of like to think of layout as like the filmmakers of, of the studio because of that knowledge of camera and stuff. And mm -hmm. um, I was really struck by, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people who have this conception of layout as like, oh, this just looks like badly animated uh, scenes or something. And like, yeah. this looks kind of <laughs> yeah. janky. It's such but, a shame, right? Because like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not right. I think I was first struck by the, the importance of layout when I was at DreamWorks and a, 
uh, layout soup was giving his presentation of how he wanted to uh, do the cinematography for a movie. And he like listed his uh, film influences. He listed like when he would use certain shots, like, oh, I'm going to use close-ups during the emotional moments of the story. So we feel this way with the character. We're more intimate versus like the wider shots. And just like, I was like totally inspired. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing. Like you are making these decisions that's going to have a really good impact on how the audience feels emotionally. And they're not even going to realize. And that's the last thing I want to say about uh, layout is like, um, it's another like hidden talent thing where no one like sees a movie and says, wow, the layout was really good because they don't really know about what, what they did, but it's such an important job because if it's bad, you're going to be confused about shot choices. You're going to be confused about Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff going on. So I'm, I know I'm going on a tangent, but I think it's a really inspiring um, department that does so much work that um, isn't like immediately appreciated. I, um, I'm i so glad you said that. And I, I know we want to keep things moving here, but I, I do think it's worth giving layout some extra props just because it yeah. is such an underappreciated step of the pipeline. And uh, I'm reminded of another specific anecdote on uh it's kind of similar to what you were talking about garrett on trolls world tour um the head of layout was talking about the difference between the different musical worlds and Mm. if you go back and watch that cool they took um inspiration from different music videos and stuff and it was so cool to see kind of like his sizzle reel or inspiration reel which is like where in the country music troll world, they have like these very slow panning, really like, you know, um, uh, really calculated, you know, smooth robotic shots. Robotics, not the right word, but you know what I mean? Very intentional. shots. Exactly. Mm -hmm. With like very slow pans and stuff. And then whenever they were in the rock and roll world, they tried to have more of a handheld gritty feel. And he was literally putting all these different, music videos up on screen in the pop world it was a little more between the two it was a little more of a deliberate camera but it was you know very well choreographed but it was really high energy so a lot of cuts and stuff and that was it was so cool you know you're putting like this artistic spin on the movie that a lot of people it's like you said they're going to feel it more than see it but it's such a cool step of the process i do have an anecdote on that note too um, very quickly Um, we went to a talk with the head of layout and cinematography on Inside Out as well. And he made a very oh conscious yeah. decision to um, change the the film language and cameras between the real world and the mind world. So in the real world, uh, he used oh. lots of handheld cameras to kind of give an uneasy, anxious feeling. Whereas in the mind world, they kind of stuck to more traditional cinematic cinematography with elaborate camera moves and still shots and that kind of thing. So um, that's super cool. And that's another example of something that is very much like unconscious, like that the viewer would not be actively aware of, but it still gives you a feeling and it still tells the story yeah, um, so in a cool. subtle way. Yeah. Even I, I remember even in the real world, they had some distortion around the edges mm-hmm. that was like barely perceptible, but it was mm. based on real world distortion you get from an actual camera Yeah. versus uh-huh. in the mind world. It was like perfect because it wasn't the real world. Yeah. It was in the mind. And I got to so rewatch cool. that movie. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah, so layout. Please know we love you. We love you. Props. It's it's a very underappreciated department, as are a lot of these departments. But yeah, yeah layout in particular. 
So next in the pipeline, we are talking about character animation. Woo! Finally. (laughs) Hashtag favorite. (laughs) (laughs) So that is what all three of us do. And basically, as a character animator, you're kind of like the actor of the movie. That doesn't sound conceited at all, does it? (laughs) So (laughs) this, uh, as a character animator, you uh, kind of, you know, you make the er characters move, emote, Etc. You know, it's uh, what an actor does. You are doing for your 3D puppet in the computer, to put it as simply as possible. And you might like uh, character animation if you um, enjoy practicing acting skills, or you have a knack for that. Um, you also are able to appreciate strong design and posing, uh, have a knowledge of anatomy and locomotion. Um, as well as ability to study and replicate real-world physics. It's also very important. And um, there's definitely a technical aspect to it. Um, We're definitely artists working on a computer, so being able to be like adept in softwares and um, figuring out constraints and all that stuff is a really good asset as well. So if Mm -hmm. you, you feel like you enjoy these things you might character animation might be for you some fun facts about our department um we generally work with lots of different departments um depending on the shot and generally um we work most closely with character effects or tech anim um who are the artists handling cloth and hair um and effects uh because a lot of what we do directly um will impact effects so if we have characters walking in snow or we have elsa um doing her sort of ice magic um, that right. will directly impact effects a character breathing fire <laughs> such as Bruni the salamander that's right um, yeah um, we experience lots of variety in our department so shot by shot um, what we work on can vary tremendously you could be working on a dragon one week and then a couple weeks later you're working on Elsa singing or perhaps a reindeer, um, that kind of thing. So we have lots of variety in what we animate. Um, We, in addition to working with lots of different departments, we also work extremely closely with the directors. We have lots of face-to-face time um, where we go back and forth um, with directors kind of trying to get the best performance possible uh, for the characters in the shot. So actually, a fun little anecdote. When I started at DreamWorks, uh, Simon Otto, who was the uh, head of character animation on How to Train Your Dragon 3, said to me, this is where the rubber really meets the road. Um, And what I think he meant by that was not that it's more important than any other department, certainly, but that character animation is one of the places where, okay, now you're like, really deciding what the final look of the film is going to be like. Um, And to an extent, you could say that about layout as well, certainly. Um, But layout is, you know, very much fluid and they do a lot of iterations and, you know, every department does. But once something is animated and it's animated specifically to camera, meaning you've posed a character in such a way that it looks the best from this particular camera view, that's usually when things like really become locked and then start to go down the pipeline, and then it just becomes about plussing that shot. So it's it's kind of the first time, that the first moment where you start to see shots in 
sort of a final form, I, I would yeah. say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's the part of the pipeline where things start costing a lot of money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> obviously, you know, everything's expensive. But if you have a, an animator working on a 10 second shot, they might be working on it for three, four weeks. And then, you know, mm-hmm. you know this is obviously in the feature film world, like, we, like we've said for all of these. But so then if you have a note that comes up uh, when you're two days away from fin- finishing your shot, all of a sudden that that means another, th- you know, maybe week or a few weeks mm-hmm. of work. So it's where things like really start to cost a lot of money and where uh, iterating can be very costly. And, uh, and yeah, like we said, it's, it's where you're starting to see the final shots in a very raw form. Yes. But it, it's where it's like, okay, this is what the movie is going to look like. It's kind of the first step of that. You could say with some argument, but yeah. Yeah, I I don't know how you guys feel, but sometimes it really stresses me out to think that what I'm animating in my Maya scene or whatever software I'm in, this is going to be on screen. Like the movement yeah. of the yeah. characters is <laughs> totally. going to be on screen. Yeah, and you're like, if I cringe at any point in my animation, like that cringe will be lived on in eternity. Totally. So you can't have that cringe. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I always think about that when I'm like stressed about a deadline and I'm debating like, oh, like should I simplify and it's okay if I don't make this absolutely perfect if just to hit the deadline. The other part of my sort of inner <laughs> voice says, no, 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 no. This is going to live Maybe forever. Yeah. So it's okay if you go over a little bit. You have to make it as good as you possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Closely related to animation is the crowds department, the next part of the pipeline. Um, and the crowds department can often be kind of comprised of two separate types of artists. You might have crowds animators who are very often animating cycles um, and that sort of thing. And you will also have crowds technical artists. And the crowds technical artists are in charge of taking the cycles that the crowds animators make and kind of populating the scenes, um, whether it's like a town or a city or something like that. Um, The crowds tech artists will actually take cycles and propagate them throughout an environment. Um, And it's kind of a skill set that involves simulations uh, and more technical skills. But they are actively doing things like taking a walk cycle and adding a motion path. So maybe it's a walk cycle that usually just goes straight, but they kind of can add a bend or a curve to that motion path they will offset animation so maybe within a shot you might have three different guys using the same cycle but you make sure that they kind of start the cycle at different times so you don't pick up on the fact that they're all using the same animation and they can even do things like layering in head turns or blinks so maybe like a main character will walk by and do something kind of broad so then the crowds artists decide oh let's have some of the town's people turn their heads like they're noticing and following that action. So it's a pretty cool uh, department where they can really get creative um, and do unique things. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're interested in working in this area, um, like we said, it, it's kind of tricky to give the exact uh, you know type of person or skills you may have because we are kind of talking about two different categories within one department here. But if you are specifically a cycles animator, 
generally uh, the type of person you are is the exact same as a character animator because that's what you're doing every day. And the only caveat we would say is generally you may be a little more focused on general body mechanics than than specific acting or, or things like that. And again, I hesitate to say that because of of course with cycles and crowds, you still want good acting and stuff, but it may be, yeah, exactly. A personality to your cycles, but it may be a little more focused on, okay, we need, you know, four different cycles of people doing a generic walk and then, you know, three different cycles of somebody picking up a basket or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be very, very mechanics heavy. It's and often generally a it's, stepping stone yes. for becoming later on like yeah. a staff character animator, which is the way the Disney apprentice program is set up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and generally with cycles of animators, with every shot you're doing or every cycle you're doing, it's full body animation, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas with the character animation, you might just be have a shot that's like chest up or something. So it's true. Sure. another reason yeah. why cycles are, are really body mechanics heavy. And then if you're more of the crowd technical person, um, those people might be more of a, a mix of uh, technical and artistic skills. Like Katie was saying, there's a lot of, uh, you know, technical side of you know populating scene with this number of animations and you you have to randomize them at this you know sort of this particular i don't know integer or whatever i'm just saying <laughs> yeah you can adjust terms speeds are, of the cycle yeah. and <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. there you go exactly so things look random even though it might just be three or four different cycles and then obviously the artistic side though you have you have to be able <laughs> the artistic side as well meaning you have to be able to look at a crowd and just say like yes that looks like a natural crowd to me versus that looks like something that's computer generated so that's a very you know artistic eye obviously um and basically just to sum it up uh crowds the technical artists are good at breathing life into different environments like a city or a town or you know people on a beach or whatever you know you just have to be able to take this big landscape and look like it's make it look like it's very naturally populated uh, which can be much more challenging than a lot of people think Um, you have to make it very specific and varied so it so it feels natural but then also uh you know just yeah, <laughs> you know, keep budgets in mind and stuff. So, yeah, it's a tricky position. It's another one of those jobs um, where if you do it right, no one notices it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think um, in terms of like fun facts and stuff, I think it's it's important to reiterate that there is like a distinction between crowd animators and crowd artists. Like I think Katie and Ben talked about like crowd animators are doing the cycles. They're actually animating the characters and then uh, crowd artists are taking the cycles and um, uh, propagating them into the scene. So those are very two different jobs. Um, but yeah, I think um, uh, depending on the studio, they're working very closely with the animation department. And oftentimes they're completely integrated into the animation department, but sometimes they're not. Um, so it really depends on the studio. Yeah. Um just briefly some more examples of like what the technical skills might involve 
like crowds, tech artists might be setting certain rules, like making sure characters don't walk into walls, making sure characters don't walk into each other. Um, If there's a group of characters running, like I remember in Frozen 2, there was a scene where everyone was running and they had to cross a bridge. They actually set it so that the characters had to slow down when they kind of converged on the bridge sort of like they're funneling out so those kinds of things like would involve sort of the more technical side and kind of a cool like special example of something a crowds artist might do is like on frozen 2 there's a scene where a bunch of reindeer start running um, and they actually form a circle and run in a circle so that's something they had to like especially figure out and um, kind of iterate on so now we move on to character effects and tech anim. And <laughs> the explain like I'm five for that job is basically they handle anything that moves on a character that isn't part of the character animation itself. So obviously characters might have hair or clothing where they might be interacting with props and all that stuff is handled by um, the character effects and tech anim departments. I will add that for Disney, tech anim artists do sometimes do some like close shaping of the characters and they can sometimes shape the anatomy of the character just to try to make things more graphic or more on model. a little more robust at Disney than at other studios maybe. They might be Mm. doing some frame by frame um, sculpting of a character's model and that sort of thing. But for the most part, Tech Anim handles cloth and hair sim and that kind of thing. Um, And the type of person a Tech Anim or character effects TD might be, is there someone who's able to study and replicate real world physics? So they'll absolutely do things like um, blow a fan on a piece of cloth to see how wind affects cloth or yeah. something like that and try to understand, yeah, what happens when wind passes through cloth. Um, they're very mixed in terms of their technical and artistic skills you'll see a recurring theme with this pipeline (laughs) is everyone kind of has a mix of technical and artistic because they are actively running simulations like what happens to hair or cloth when it gets wet or what happens when it's windy or anything like that Um, and they definitely have a very keen eye for detail where they are like character animators, they're working frame by frame to get the best performance out of the hair and cloth um, that they possibly can. That's right. And some fun facts about character effects slash tech anim is that they generally work very, very closely with animation. Um, they're, you know, totally intertwined, those two departments. I, I have to yeah. say, like, almost, almost I mean... Unless your character is completely naked and <laughs> and has no muscle or fat or anything, you're going to be you know working with character effects in some regard if you're an animator. Um, so and it's it's really cool. I have to say I, I love wor- working with those people because they usually you know it's definitely it's part of animation just like anything else where you're deciding on the silhouette of a character and and nice storytelling poses with the cloth and hair simulation and everything. Um, as one of these artists, you might get to work on super fun stuff. Like for example, like, uh, in Wreck-It Ralph 2, like his belly popping out of his princess dress when he was, you know, stuffed into that. I was totally, you know, probably like 70% of that or more was a tech anim artist just doing that simulation wow. on like the, 
the fat and jiggly stuff popping out of that <laughs> out of and that the dress, dress breaking and popping. Yes, and the dra- yeah, 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 that's the more obvious thing. Even the, the dress. But yeah, they definitely. I remember right. they worked on the belly jiggling and yeah. And then, um, in addition to that, um, you might even be helping to keep the characters on model. Again, I'm going to uh, reference uh, Wreck It Ralph in this way, but. Um, they often made him feel much more square and kind of pixely mm. than other characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that was more easily achieved in effects than it was even in animation because the rigs like didn't have exactly the same uh, sculpting tools yeah. that they did in, in character effects. So it can, be, it can be really varied, their responsibilities. And mm-hmm. off the top of my head, I'm also thinking of like the... Uh, his Dark Materials, the Golden Compass uh, mm. TV show. I know effects artists did a lot of work with like the polar bears with like cool muscle and fat simulation when the polar bear is walking mm-hmm. to make them feel really weighty and realistic. And uh, I think a lot of times animators actually get the credit for those things <laughs> when <laughs> actually it's uh, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when, it, when it's actually a character effects or tech anim person doing all that work. Um Another so. hidden job where it's exactly. like, yeah. your job yeah. well, you're not like, oh, the character effects and uh, yeah, that was really great. No normal person would say that. That's exactly you know? yeah. right. Yeah, you're totally right. They very often fix inner penetrations that animators can't fix. So like if yeah. your elbow is somehow penetrating your belly or something like that and it's too hard to fix it with the rig like tech animal go in and sculpt that and make it look better yeah even something simple as like you have a character with their arms resting at their sides Mm -hmm. a lot of characters are so big and bulky that you have their arms and torsos penetrating definitely and then it's an effects artist who has to go in there and clean all that up and to make sure that things are not actually penetrating or if they are, it it's not visible from camera mm-hmm. and, and do simulation on top of that. So it is a ton of very artistic work that often yeah. goes uh, unrecognized. Totally. But yeah, those people are amazing. So next, we are going to be talking about effects. This could be... Yeah. So what do you think? Water cannons, explosions, smoke, everything. Fire. That's true. That's all Michael true. Bay. <laughs> Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it can be, uh, you know, slightly more subtle things. It can be footprints in snow or sand or whatever. <laughs> it could be some dust that's kicked up on the ground. Mm-hmm. It can be, I don't know, a little saliva that spits out of someone's mouth when they're saying something with a lot of s's in it (laughs) slytherin or something i don't know that just has one s i don't know why i use that as an example (laughs) but yeah or or it could be uh more abstract things like elsa's magic or a elsa's being plugged hard yeah she really is yeah my gosh you would think we work at disney or something i know but uh (laughs) yeah so it can be yeah real world effects or made up things you know uh telepathic energy you know how that shows up on screen or so any of those things that's what we're talking Mm -hmm. about Yes, and you might enjoy the effects department if you enjoy observing real-world physics in live-action footage, um, as well as have a working knowledge of basic physics principles, um, and the ability to work realistically or stylized. And the example we have for this is like 
um, you know, how to train your dragon, the fire and water effects might be a little more grounded in realism versus like Elsa's magic, which is <laughs> Elsa. <more> fantastic. <laughs> Keep bringing it up, Elsa. Or if we say like Trolls World Tour, there's a lot of like oh. things in that that are like super stylized. You know, everything looks like fabric. So just as a that's off script, FYI, just jumped in with that thing. Just but yeah. jumped in there. Oh my God. No, we, we actually were slated to talk about that later and Katie just pointed oh. it out to me and I ruined it. Oh my God. Editing this out. Keep this out. My God. Okay, keep going. No, I apologize. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a good point to discuss that like there is uh, different styles when it comes totally. to animation, just yeah. as there's different styles with animation. And um, as well as if you're the type of person who enjoys building tools that allow you to work quickly and iteratively and uh, possibly working procedurally, is there any more Elise I can add? To that? <laughs> Help me out here. But yeah, all those, um, yeah, that's effects for you. Moving on to the miscellaneous info and fun facts section for effects. Um, the effects department works very closely with animation, as we mentioned. They're definitely building off of the performances that the animators do. Um, they also work very closely with tech anim in that same regard. You know, if a character gets wet or something like that, and um, the effects department would, would obviously be in charge of the water, but then also work closely with tech anim to make sure that the cloth looks realistic wet and there's definitely interaction there and they also work very closely with lighting so there might be very specific lighting that they want to hit with um, the effects so the, the first example that comes to mind is another frozen two example so <laughs> bernie the salamander had a special magic oh. fire which was actually purple and pink um, so that right. was definitely a collaboration between effects and lighting there um, in some cases, effects can be handled in compositing. Um, and as we mentioned before, Ben was talking about trolls. There might be instances where you need kind of more specific, practical manual effects. Another example that immediately comes to mind is if you've seen the Lego movie, they did tons of very cool um, stylized effects with the Legos. Like there was Lego oh, water, yeah. Lego fire, cool. um, and that sort of thing. Um, within an effects department, you might find artists that kind of specialize in different types of effects. So you might have people uh, that are more comfortable with fire or water, uh, much like character animators are more comfortable with comedy or drama or, or uh, body mechanics, physical acting effects. People also sometimes specialize in that way. Um, and yeah, they they do a lot of building tools um, you know, if a sequence is going to have like a ton of dust kick up, they might kind of build a setup that they can use over and over again to make dust. Like the first example that comes to mind is I actually helped with um, Ferdinand at Blue Sky and they were doing bull racing. So they built a special dust um, tool for that, that they kind of use and would use different or would adjust settings depending on the shots for. Where haven't you worked? <laughs> I know. you worked in every department. <laughs> Next, we are moving on to general TDs, which stands for technical directors. Um, the layman's explanation for TDs are that they are generally sort of pipeline engineers and help with sort of general problem solving and tech support. So if you're finding issues in your shot, they could kind of help 
you dive in and diagnose and figure out what's wrong or what might be broken. Um, and on top of that sort of problem solving, they actually build and create tools um, which can help sort of improve the process and maybe improve the UI or the user interface. So they might be building tools like for animation, um, a better play blast system, which lets you kind of preview your animation um, or that kind of thing. Yeah, these are the people you go to when you have a problem. That's (laughs) like literally like if you have an issue, you go to a TD and it's so invaluable. Um, The type of people who might be interested in this are people who are really good problem solvers, very tech savvy people. Um, and oftentimes we found that they have backgrounds in like computer science. So they're, they're really knowledgeable about, you know, computers and and tech stuff, um, as well as it's really important to have good soft skills because, (laughs) you know, artists, if they encounter a problem, they can get really grumpy and they might not have the best (laughs) way. Uh, I know Ben, especially with the problem, (laughs) that's where animation, he just, he swears it's really bad and he swears, he goes, Fucking, I shouldn't. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, podcast. I, I was going to make a joke. was going to happen. I was. Forget I said anything. For the record, Ben's very kind to TV. Thanks, ben is very kind. I'm sorry. I was just being funny. But yeah, no, it's soft skills are important. Should I redo that? that was, no, I, I like it. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. He goes, fucking... I, I didn't know what was going to come after that. I was like, wow. I was just trying to yes and everything, the, the improv rule. But yeah. I, I'm, I'm so, so sorry. Gracious. What am I, what I, what am I, I agreeing going? to here? <laughs> I should, it would have been funnier if I did Katie. That would have been funnier. Oh, I... I am a Disney animator. Do you yeah. understand? Fix it. I don't care how you do it, nerd. <laughs> I'm usually oh like, God. oh, if you have time, if you could, like, please look into this thing. <laughs> so as far as additional fun facts go, um, if you are a TD, you really can work with anyone and everyone in the department. Almost That's every true. department, I believe, if not Actually, every department has their own set of TDs, and then sometimes the different studios, there are general TDs for the studio as well that will work with anyone. You know, it could be somebody from Story who's saying, okay, I'm trying to submit my my boards for this sequence. For some reason, I keep getting an error. It's not going through to an animator saying, hey, I opened up my shot and the environment isn't showing up. I don't know what's going on or Mm-hmm. It really can be anything. So um, it, it can be great for somebody who is just a general, like we said before, a problem solver who has varied interests because more likely than not, you're going to be working with a bunch of different types of people on a bunch of different types of issues. So uh, um, it certainly keeps things fresh, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. So next we move on to matte painting. So the Explain Like I'm 5 for matte painting, um, they are the animation artists who create painted representations of landscapes, sets, and other locations as backgrounds for scenes that are either impossible to find or impossibly difficult to film. So I guess it's like they're the ones who, who kind of, we cheat. We're not making them in CG, but we're 
drawing them out because it's too expensive or for whatever reason, like we can't um, have them in CG. That's exactly right. Yeah. Every CG element generally requires a lot of computing power. So if you have a, a matte painter who can match 3D and 2D elements really well, you're saving yourself a ton of money because you don't have to have, mm-hmm. you know, uh, modelers, look dev people, lighters working on that. You just have the one matte painter to kind of fill all those roles. Um, awesome. So if you want to be a matte painter, you are most likely very artistic. Essentially, you are a professional painter, of course, mm-hmm. you know, so obviously artistic. Uh, another thing we have written down here is resourceful. Oftentimes you have to piece together kind of different miscellaneous elements and put them together. Uh, meaning maybe on some shows you'll have like, okay, we have these three elements for the background. You kind of have to combine these with a painting of, and even, you know, more of a background background. It could be like like your, it could be like you're mixing a sky with a mountain range with clouds with, Mm. Yeah, whatever would be in the background. And maybe you have like certain elements of that sky built in 3D, but then you have to expand it to be look like it's endless in 2D. Mm -hmm. Uh, A very specific example is on, again, this this whole episode is like (laughs) Frozen 2 and (laughs) Trolls World Tour. But uh, in Trolls World Tour, um, they used like... There was a lot of set extension with the sky here and there, and they used literally pictures of cotton candy oh, mixed cool. with pictures of clouds mm. and stuff and kind of combined oh, them awesome. and painted things to give like a really, because everything in Trolls is very tactile, um, mm. to give that very tactile real feel while also kind of filling out the world. Because if you were to actually build a set that looks like an endless sky, that would be so much more money and so much more mm-hmm. time intensive than having a really talented artist who can just paint it. Uh, and the last thing we talked about was, again, it kind of goes with just being a good artist. You have to have a good knowledge of color theory, perspective, etc. because a lot of times you're dealing with set extension. That's probably the most common thing. So you have to really know how things look when they're receding into the, the distance and, uh, you know, be able to vary, um, uh, you know, integrate different elements of a scene in a very seamless way. Yeah. So generally they're like super or they're Photoshop wizards kind of where they're Mm. like combining different images and painting them to look seamless and then painting them to kind of match what's been rendered. Um, And in terms of like fun facts, like the departments they work with, they, they often work with modeling, like whoever's in charge of the environment model, um, and props, and they work very closely with lighting to make sure that the color um, is matching, yeah, like <laughs> the color and cinematography that the lighter set up. Um, and they'll actually work super closely with the production designer as well, because production designers are kind of in charge of the color script, um, which is sort of the overall look and lighting of the film. Um, maybe you guys, I will put these in the show notes. They're they're usually like a, a very <laughs> broad overview of the entire film where they kind of go sequence by sequence and kind of lay out what is the color and lighting going to look like. Um, and the only other fun fact we have um, is that it's usually a very small department. It's a very niche position. Um, I think at Disney, maybe we have like three to five matte painters. Yeah. Um 
So it's definitely niche, um, but it, it's a super, super cool job and department. Yeah. And I think it definitely applies in the context of like when it's done well, no one mentions it type of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I keep, I keep mentioning that. (laughs) I hope that's okay. I just feel like it's important to mention because I do feel like animation is the thing that everyone always mentions. And, you know, there's so much else that goes into it that's not talked about, like map painting. So Mm -hmm. you're totally right. um, I I feel like the two main things are like animation and character design generally or environment design. Yeah. And then everything else is, you know, kind of (laughs) very unjustly so uh, looked over. But. I mean, or attributed are, to animation. Yeah, be like, yeah, wow, the right. hair looked so real. That yes, animation is amazing. Yeah. But totally. that's like not our and department. And then it's usually oh, like, yeah, thank you. I did all of that. <laughs> you know, <you're, laughs> I'm responsible for every frame. Yeah. But in the case of matte painting, I feel like that's probably people misattributing it as like, wow, that CG is amazing. And it's like, yeah. no, it's, it's actually, totally right. it's not rendered. It's not computer generated. It's this a, is a painting someone a, did. It's a testament to how good it usually is yeah. because honestly yeah. i can almost guarantee in every single film you've seen not just animated film recently there have been matte painters that worked on it and that made images and sets that look like they were just taken from a live action camera or were part of the 3d set and you assumed they were but it actually was a 2d painting from a matte painter yeah. so they're they're yeah incredibly talented people and Garrett is totally right. Largely their work goes unnoticed. So for the next stage of the pipeline, we are getting close to the end here. (laughs) So this is (laughs) pipeline. So this is lighting slash compositing. So for the explain it to me, like I'm five section, we'll say, in lighting compositing, you take the work from every every other department and you render it, basically, meaning you get to the nearly final look of the film. Um, and before that, I should backtrack a little bit. And a lot of times you're opening up like a 3D scene and you're taking uh, elements, like we said, from every department, from animation, from CFX to effects, and you are placing physical lights in the scene to uh, highlight certain things to make sure certain things are in shadow. You're also dealing with color and stuff. So it's a really cool, really artistic and technical uh, part of the process. Uh, But then so you're setting all that stuff up, you know, rim light, the bounce light, everything general color tone of the scene. And then you run it through the computer and quote unquote, render it. And then what is spit out is something that is very, very close to the final look of the film. So there's definitely a lot of uh, burden on the lighters and compositing artists' shoulders. I mean, I know I can speak from personal experience. Wherever I see my animation lit, I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. it looks so cool. Like they make them, they make it look like you know, the feature quality that it is. I say that about Garrett shots too, when they're lit. I say, oh my God, it looks so cool. (laughs) Just like that. Um, And so, you know, oh, well, what type of person uh, should you be if you are interested in lighting? Well, let me tell you, you are an artistic and technical person and you enjoy (laughs) that's like the number one do you want to work in animation you are artistic and technical (laughs) yes 
Um, but more specifically, to be a little more helpful, you have a good <laughs> knowledge of color theory. That's very important. As well as having a focus on creating a general mood and atmosphere, as well as cinematography. Because after all, like Ben kind of touched upon, you're adding lights to a scene much like a, a person in live action would add, a, oh, we need a little more fill light. So add this fill light here. Like you having that uh, foundation is super important for a lighter specifically. So and compositor. Yeah. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, some quick fun facts about lighters. Um, they actually do some effects work sometimes, like kind of more background effects, like say there's a lightning strike in the background or a fire off in the distance. They might kind of composite that in. Um, they work very closely with the production designer, actually. Um, so for when I was a lighting PA in every single lighting review, we had the production designer, um, who at the time was Corey Loftus in the meeting and he would give notes like, can we reduce the shadow under Vanellope's chin? Can we add more of a pink, um, glow to this character or something like that? Um, and they, they work closely to kind of, tell the arc of the film in lighting and color. Um, and we mentioned the color script earlier. So they're, they're very much bringing that color script to life through CG. Um, one kind of lesser known thing about lighting is that this is very often the last place where you can kind of catch a mistake um, or broken data being passed downstream. So sometimes you will see things interpenetrating or maybe something has a flash or a pop. Um, and that's kind of a signal that something maybe didn't quite make it down the pipeline cleanly. Um, so they're very often, they have super trained eyes that are good at kind of catching that sort of thing one of the less fun parts about being a lighter is that they very often experience the worst crunch um, out of the entire pipeline because they're sort of the last step um, and every single shot has to go through lighting Um, so they can work some really tough long hours at the end of the film Um, but if you're at a studio that pays overtime, it can mean you're making serious banks. So (laughs) (laughs) there there are some pros and cons there. Um, you might not realize this, but lighters can work on several shots at one time. Um, since rendering can kind of take hours or overnight, um, you will very often be assigned multiple shots that you can kind of bounce between while you're working. And you might or you'll likely receive multiple shots within the same sequence. So you can kind of leave and use the same uh, light setup for different shots and then make adjustments based off of where the characters are and where the camera is. Um, So being a lighting soup might mean that you're kind of in charge of setting up the foundation lighting setup for a sequence. And then your artists who are sort of under you as a soup actually make the minor adjustments shot by shot. After lighting, we have the image finaling department. Um, And the layman's explanation for image finaling is it's sort of the department for final tweaking, cleanup, sweetening, and color correction. So they are in charge of the final product in terms of the visuals or from a visual standpoint. Um, They are, yeah, the last line of defense polishing the shot um, after it leaves lighting. And um, they actually might digitally fix and alter frames using Nuke for compositing. Um, And they might also kind of color correct across shots. It's possible that um, 
within lighting from artist to artist or shot to shot or sequence to sequence, the color might be just slightly inconsistent um, and they might kind of color correct that. And they can also um, help diagnose rendering issues. So um, they might diagnose that by I this somebody else wrote this and I have to admit I don't entirely understand it so <laughs> I will just read it verbatim. <laughs> somebody else, as in Garrett, or <laughs> um, some other idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I'm the idiot who can't understand it. No. Okay, it says the image finaling artist is responsible for diagnosing rendering issues within pre-set up nuke scripts received from upstream departments. Yeah, that's tough. I don't even know. I, think I, I copy and pasted that and yeah i could say i mean sometimes when you uh render an image and stuff there might be little artifacts here and there with like that makes sense you yeah. know grass or fur yeah. or whatever and and i'm sure trust me i'm sure i'm oversimplifying too but <laughs> there are situations where it's probably cheaper to have an individual art- artist do a pass at cleaning that up in nuke or whatever mm-hmm. than it is to re-render the entire shot um, with all the 3D totally. elements. Because it, ultimately, in image finaling, you're just dealing with a 2D image and kind of sweetening that. Mm-hmm. Um, so with as far as the type of person or skills you might need when you if you're interested in this, uh, first is a very highly tuned artistic eye. Uh, this is a, you are responsible for the final image that is on screen. You're the final look yeah. of the movie. Uh, so you really got to know your stuff as far as, you know, being detail oriented. You have to have a very good knowledge of color theory and such because you you're the last visual person to touch it. So any sweetening, anything is totally up to you. Um, just for an example, I'll talk about in, again, Trolls World Tour. This is the Frozen <laughs> 2 Trolls World Tour you know, show right now. But um, I had a couple shots with Queen Barb where she was leaning on a bar, uh, like a jail cell bar. And uh, she had her fist against the bar. And I noticed the image finaling people. There was already like a tiny bit of a shadow there where her hand was touching the bar. But they added a much more defined contact shadow to just really handle mm-hmm. that. Uh, on top of any, you know, color correction or anything. So, you know, it could be fixing little IPs and stuff that, that are easy enough to fix in 2D. It could be sweetening the color, making sure that things are consistent. could be, you know, like I said, you know, selling your contact better. could kind of be the name of the game for image finaling is a bunch of minor tweaks to really make mm-hmm. everything sing and, and be more uh, believable, I guess. And yeah, I remember, you know, how you mentioned that it might be cheaper for image finaling to go in there to fix something versus production to redo it. I mean, I just can speak from personal experience with my film. It was I I remember doing a full HD render of like a sequence in my film. And there would be times where I was like, it would be faster for me to open up Photoshop and like clean up the penetrations on the on the things versus opening up Maya, fixing that in animation and then rendering it out, like basically, I can see how image finally makes so much more totally sense yeah. to do that because it's it's such a pain. It, even if you have a penetration that's like uh, you think, oh, like like basically the fingers are going through this prop, um, you think that would be easy, but it, it's just so it involves so many departments. So. Yeah, it can also. Easy, right? 
<laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. It can also save on rendering time. Like I know that they'll kind of receive um, something that we call mats from lighting. Um, so that's basically like they have layers for like different characters or the characters eye whites or something. And then the image finaling artist can can like make a character pop more, make them more br- bright so they contrast better from the background and they're kind of tweaking yeah, things like brightness and contrast and color on like just the character or just the whites of their eyes or something like that. Sometimes like their the whites of their teeth are even or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. So they are the another uh hidden gem of the animation pipeline, mm-hmm. I think, that they do a lot of fixes that um, you won't notice, but make a huge difference. Definitely. That's right. So next we're going to talk about sound design. And this is a very broad job, but um, this kind of is self-explanatory. You know, our, our films are animated and they need sound, whether that's the music or the effects, you know, which effects could mean something as simple as a character walking and what's the sound of the footsteps on the type of ground um, or, you know, anything, any any sound you hear needs to be artificially created. And that is the job of the sound designers. So that is a whole section of the animation pipeline that is incredibly important. I think immediately I think of um, WALL-E mm-hmm. and how oh, yeah. the, the first you know, act of that movie, maybe the first two acts, I don't remember, was totally no dialogue. It was just the sound of this robot um, in a really appealing way. And I remember seeing the behind the scenes of that DVD and being like, this is so cool. The, the, the passion and like the, the charm they added to that movie. So, yeah, um, I think that sound designer's name is Ben Burt. I remember correctly and he's done like Ben (laughs) love it he's done like everything from Star Wars to Raiders of the Lost Ark to Jurassic Park like he's made all of the famous noises like the lightsaber sound um, Wally's voice the T-Rex roar like everything I feel like it's like unreal yeah Yeah. that's amazing so talented and inspiring but anyway (laughs) I interrupted (laughs) no no that's it I mean that's there's not much to it it's any of the sounds you hear, that is the responsibility of the sound designers. So that's their job. So I will add to that. Yes, uh, sound design is everything you hear on screen, but there's kind of a delineation between sound effects and then the kind of music or orchestral score. Uh, yeah, yeah, the score. Exactly. Yeah. And um, specifically, that same guy, uh, Katie was just talking about, Ben, um, who he actually came to SCAD when Katie and I were there and gave a talk. We went and listened to him and it was amazing. And he talked about um, how they are definitely two parts of a whole, the sound effects and uh, score, but it's very important to make sure they're both strong on their own accord. He specifically, he talked about it is really easy to, if you take storyboards or something and put them to this beautiful score the movie may seem much stronger than it actually is. So it was really interesting that he, he actually recommended making a movie with just the sound effects and then later scoring it. Mm. Um, And I'm sure there's, there are a number of different opinions on that, but uh, the reason we bring it up is just to say that there is a big difference between those two things uh, between sound effects and music, um, even though they're part of the same whole 
Um, so yeah, yeah, you might be more interested in one than the other, and that is totally fine because they are separate things. Yeah, nice. um, a traditional sound effects artist, the type of person that might be is someone who's super resourceful and observant. So they pay attention to every single sound you can think of, whether it's just the way a wine glass is put on a table or a footstep in snow versus a footstep in sand, or how do you combine XYZ sound effect to result in the lightsaber sound effect and that kind of thing. And they mix and match um, sounds to get what they want. Um, and there's definitely like a musical side to that. Like sometimes they will kind of have sounds digitally saved and then they'll play them like even on a keyboard or on their computer to do the sound. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, like the, the musical orchestral score for a film, it's certainly extremely musical. Um, there's usually a, a, single composer who composes the entire score for the film. They're very good at thinking big picture and kind of tracking the arc of the story. Yeah. It's probably more so a musician first and then like transitioned Mm -hmm. into like sound design sort of stuff. But Um, yeah, yeah, it's a a huge (laughs) huge part (laughs) of the film and definitely it's one of the most exciting parts where it super feels like it's coming to life and, What's funny is they both work to the film. So like they'll have the film playing and then they either, if you're the sound effects artist, you're doing what they call Foley where they like use objects sometimes and try to time it along to the film and record it that way if they need new sounds or they'll pull from their libraries and add it on. And the orchestra actually has like a giant projection of the the movie that they're playing to. Um, for inspiration and to keep track and making sure the music goes exactly with the film. Yeah. And you'll actually see that on, if you have Disney plus, uh, the making yeah. of the unknown, mm-hmm. right. They actually go into that room where everything is being, uh, the orchestra is there yeah. and yeah, you can see the movie. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as some additional fun facts, we want to say that the, Uh, A lot of the things that happen in an animated feature film, if you're at a place like Blue Sky, DreamWorks, Sony, etc., Disney, whatever, uh, a lot of it is is very much in-house. But the final sound stuff, especially the orchestra sound effects, are usually done uh, off-site. For example, there's like Skywalker Ranch or something, which I think is up in the San Francisco area. I could be wrong. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, where where a lot of movies are made. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's usually something that for the final, final sound stuff, it's usually not like in the same building as everybody else. Um, Yeah, with possibly a few exceptions, but yeah. The only only thing I would add is I remember going to film school, like sound is not viewed as the, the, again, like the sexy thing. No one thinks of sound. They think of the visuals and when you, but when you see a student film that has bad sound, it's like so obvious and it's, it takes away from it. So it's again, I know I keep repeating this, but it's one of those things where if done well, you don't think about it. If, if done poorly, you're like, 
what is this <laughs> horrible, horrible oh, movie? You're, you are so <laughs> right. And I feel like there's a bunch of YouTube videos, right, that have like epic scenes without the music. And, <laughs> and you can watch them and you're like, oh, my God. Like without the music, this doesn't just look less epic. It looks stupid, you know, like it. <laughs> So finally, we're going to talk about production management. Um, production management works alongside all other departments in the pipeline. So like everything we've talked about, they're also there working. Um, so I know we put this at the end, but just know that it's not the final piece of the production. It's happening simultaneously with every other department. Uh, production staff generally help support the artists by scheduling meetings. They will also drive those meetings and kind of organize the playlist and agenda for meetings. They generally think big picture and set deadlines. And they're just sort of in charge of making sure things get done. Um, and kind of the simple way to think of this, if you're not familiar, is to kind of think of the typical responsibilities and jobs of a project manager. And you might be interested in production management if you are organized, detail-oriented, and strategic. Um, and uh, we also wrote here, if you love spreadsheets, Slack, emails, calendars, all that good stuff, you might be interested in production. Um, it's also very important to be friendly and uh, be a people person and social. Although I do anecdotally know some uh, more introverted people. Uh, production peoples, but I think generally... <laughs> I you were going to say, like, I know some really mean production <laughs> oh I know some awful production <laughs> stuff. No, no. But we just put that there because you're going to be interacting with artists on a day-to-day -day basis and stuff, So, or other people. Um, you, Yeah, great soft skills, ability to read the room. That's really helpful. Being able to think on your feet. Um, also, like, if you're really passionate about the world of animation, but you don't necessarily want to be a production artist, that is, a, this could be a really good path for you. Um, and I, I know a lot of people like that. And um, someone who can build the morale, you know, when, when times get tough and you're someone who can be an optimistic uh, beacon of light for everyone. That'd be great. So kind of a fun fact about production, uh, whereas with a lot of other disciplines there are only like two or three different levels to it where you're like assistant animator animator supervising animator you know etc maybe head of animation that's it with production there are many more levels so you can be a pa production assistant production coordinator production supervisor production manager associate producer and producer and possibly even more at different studios but um also kind of going along with that a PA, generally speaking, is usually like the lowest paid person in the studio, maybe, depending on the studio. Uh, but it's kind of a, a stereotype that exists, you know, because it's usually mm -hmm. the case. But then a producer on a movie generally is one of the highest paid people on a movie, if not the highest. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of a crazy thing, right? Like being on the production route, you can go from you know, if you were to work your way all the way up from PA to producer, which has happened at different studios, you can go from the <laughs> least paid to most paid person in, in the same awesome. studio. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, also, another fun fact is production people rotate between departments generally, um, from show to show, like if you're on Frozen 2, and now you're on Ryan, the last dragon, uh, rarely do production people stay on the same 
in, within the same department, meaning you might be the production coordinator for animation, but then on the next movie, you're the production coordinator or, or a production supervisor for the effects department or story department or something like that. And then cool. also, yeah, it is very cool. You what can definitely, variety. yeah, that's mm-hmm. absolutely right. And Katie can probably talk more about that um, <laughs> but, because she kind of jumped between. Yeah. When I was on Wreck-It Ralph 2, I worked in lighting um, story, editorial, and tech anims. That's four departments wow, within so. one movie. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> so, you, and I think all of that, the purpose for that is to kind of get you trained in all these areas. So, when you rise the ranks, you're able to have more of a global view mm-hmm. of the whole pipeline totally. and, and can decide budget stuff because you've been in all these different departments. So you know what you're talking about. Uh, but that being said, uh, the job responsibilities can vary a lot depending on which department you're in. So as we're going to discuss as we go throughout this episode, the departments can be super different. So it makes sense that if you're handling the production side of things for your department, uh, your responsibilities will vary quite a bit. For yeah. example, if you're in animation, you just might be taking director notes for each animator's shot and passing those along mm-hmm. and making sure they get implemented. Um, if you're an editorial, you might be, you know, receiving all these different things from different departments and making sure they get incorporated into the, uh, you know, the final <laughs> mix or final sure, edit for the yeah. movie. You might be sitting in on voice recordings mm-hmm. if you're an editorial or something else. So it can be even though there can be, you know, let's say there are 30 there's probably more, but let's say there's that many production assistants at a feature film studio, their everyday responsibilities could be night and day different difference depending on what um, department they're in. So lastly, um, before we wrap up the pipeline, we do want to give some mention to sort of the high level leadership, which sort of exists outside of the CG pipeline, like they aren't their own department. And what I mean by this is positions like the director, the screenwriter, the producer, um, etc. So um, if you guys aren't familiar, the director is the person calling all of the creative shots for the film. They make or they are in charge of overseeing the creative direction and they're giving acting notes to animators and giving lighting notes to lighters, etc. So they work very closely with every single department to shape the direction of the film. Um, the screenwriter is in charge of the script, so they are definitely writing the dialogue and um, working with the story team to uh, create the story arc um, and kind of yeah, decide what happens in the film beat by beat uh, in script written form. Um, and lastly, I'll mention the producer who is kind of the mastermind behind getting the film done and on budget. So they are working very closely with production management and creative heads as well of the departments to make sure that the film can be completed on time. And there's tons of strategy involved um, deciding, oh, when is something safe to put into production or um, when do we need to press the pause button on something because we know it's getting cut or how many people can we afford to hire for animation to make sure that the film gets done or that kind of thing. So the producer, um, yeah, they're kind of like the giant project manager for the entire film. Um, and they do work very closely with both the creative side and the production management uh, kind of nitty gritty strategic side. 
They're in charge of the money. <laughs> that's that's another kind of quick way to say it. And they make the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the only last thing I'll add to those positions is that they also work closely with corporate if you're working at a studio like Disney. So they will be actively pitching and presenting the film to kind of the heads of Disney, the corporate board with like Bob Iger, uh, Bob Chapek, et cetera. Um, but yeah, they, those are absolutely, again, like we said with development, they're not positions that you're going to walk into <laughs> entry level, but they're worth mentioning because they are definitely a huge part of the pipeline. All right. That brings us to the tip job. Tip job! Oh, I wish yeah. you could see the eclectic mix of things we're bringing together <laughs> right now. It's Quarantine. my wedding ring on a plastic <laughs> glass. It's a shot glass against like a, a water a bottle because I am responsible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All kinds of stuff. Basically everything Crazy. but two chalices of beer. <laughs> Unfortunately. Chalice is not the right word. I don't know why I said that. Anyway, continue. Um, hmm. That was the worst time for me to drink. No, that, that keep beer. that in because that I'm proves that Garrett that. is taking sips of beer. Taking <laughs> sippies. This is a sippies happy hour. Of beer. So our tip today is very important and it's very underutilized, we think. But it's all about ergonomics, um, especially when we're working from home. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, ergonomics is super important. And what that means is basically... Um, prioritizing the way, the physical way you're working, whether that's, you know, whether you're, you have a standing desk, whether you're sitting down for long periods of time, um, you know, just taking a moment, taking a beat to, you know, figure out the physical way you're working. And for me, I know I bought this thing that allows me to, uh, lift my computer on my desk so I can stand. And it's super important for me because I, I can't sit for like eight hours a day. It really affects me um, to do that. And you that. have really nice legs, so it's good to sit around <laughs> every now and then. I have really nice legs, yeah. so it helps, you know, push those muscles. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I you think- totally derailed him <laughs> with your compliment. <laughs> Please interject on ergonomics because I lost all focus. Yeah. I mean, it's basically like there are so many little things you can do to make sure that you don't develop some kind of chronic issue like um, carpal tunnel or arthritis or that kind of thing. So. Um, Some other things that come to mind are make sure that your desk is at a height and your chair is at a height so that you can kind of keep a 90 degree angle in your legs when they're bent if you're sitting and um, in your arms when you have your hand on a mouse. Um, You can also buy special um, computer mice and keyboards that are better um, sort of angled and arranged for your arms so that you don't have to have kind of an awkward twist while you type or while you click. Yeah. Um, ben, can you think of any others? Uh, maybe some blue light filtering glasses. Ooh, it's kind of yeah. not exactly ergonomic per se, but still taking care of yourself. Um, mm-hmm. uh, generally, I think it's accepted that that's healthier for you to kind of filter out some of that blue light to, to not uh, interrupt your sleeping patterns. And then, Katie, I'm sorry. Remind me, what is the? There's some like 2020 rule or something. <laughs> 20, 20, like, <laughs> um, I think it's it's basically um, since we stare at a, a computer all day, it's good to take 
a break with your eyes every now and then and look at something that's like more than 20 feet away. Uh Um, And it can be as short as 30 seconds or something like that. Or 20 seconds. Maybe. I don't know if I have the same memory that it's like a 20. 20. (laughs) I I might have just made that up. That's a a good thing to shoot for. Maybe every 20 minutes, look 20 feet away for 20 seconds. Every 20 seconds. We're going to copyright that. Every every 20 (laughs) seconds, yeah, look away for 20 minutes. (laughs) That would also be beneficial. So convoluted. But on that note of the screen, make sure the screen's like not too close that it's generally at the same height as your eyes so that you're not straining down or up and that it's also more directly in front of you so that you don't have to constantly turn your head because it sounds crazy with those little head turns. If you do them hundreds of thousands of times a day, it can really add up to neck strain and back pain. Yeah, I keep that screen a healthy distance away. I can say every time I see Garrett on the Zoom call, (laughs) I want to bring that screen as close as possible. And then Katie is like, leave it back a little farther i'm like oh, oh you know and it's always this thing but i know she's just looking out for my health so i yeah. keep it a little farther away i saw your face and I was like, <laughs> no you had no something. idea you had no idea that was coming yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well back to some serious suggestions for a second <laughs> you can also get um wrist rests um which are pretty important um because it can definitely be a strain on your wrist to hold it <laughs> These guys are still laughing yeah, and so like visual like, and yeah. like flirting with their eyes. Yeah. I can no. see it. <laughs> no, um, but yeah, definitely take the time to just make sure that your setup is working for you and that you're not setting yourself up for injury long term. That's very right. Important. Yeah, all yeah, very very good tips. Please keep those to heart. We know we they sound like soft suggestions, but they are really really important, especially mm-hmm. if you're animating for, you know, 20, 30 years, these habits make a yeah. huge difference. There are special stretches too that you can do with your wrist and forearms yeah. to make sure that you're tr- you're actively avoiding carpal tunnel, especially if yeah. you're in a discipline like VisDev or Story where you're drawing all day. Um it, it definitely can take a toll. So, and with that, we're coming to the end of our episode. We hope you enjoyed this. We sincerely hope. <laughs> Check out our show notes for uh, other relevant resources. There are a lot of great resources out there that also cover the pipeline. Um, for example, uh, DreamWorks has a great video you can find on YouTube with the penguins of Madagascar talking about so the pipeline. Good. That's kind of like a mm-hmm. super quick overview of what we just talked about. It's like 15 minutes long, but they cover just about everything we did here. Yeah, and have a visual component, which is so helpful. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Here, you just have to imagine how attractive <laughs> Garrett is. But trust me, if there was a visual wow, opponent, you would see it. All right, next. Also, uh, cgspectrum.com has some great, uh, you know, talks about the pipeline. Also talks a little bit about the day in the life of different artists, which can be very valuable if you're not sure exactly what you want to do. Uh, the Rookies website is a good one to expose yourself to different, you know, um, areas within the pipeline, you know, figure out what might appeal to you, to you, uh, nofilmschool.com and honestly, a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> if you it's just literally uh, in our notes, <laughs> that's a bunch right. of stuff. That's what we wrote down here because honestly, like we said, you know, at the very beginning of this episode, working in animation can mean 
almost anything. So really take the time to educate yourself on what might most appeal to you. Because obviously, when everybody hears DreamWorks, Disney, whatever, Pixar, Blue Sky, Sony, they think, oh, you work there, you're an animator. But that is, you know, (laughs) such a small percentage of the people work at these studios are actual character animators. So do yourself a favor, take a breath. Take some time to just do some research and it'll be super fun. You can see what appeals to you. Treat it the same way you would treat what Hogwarts house you fit into <laughs> as, as what, that's a good point. you know, step yeah. of the pipeline most appeals to you. It's yeah. a fun thing that's kind of dependent on your personality and your skill set. So totally. take some time to do that. So it's now time to give our last sort of social media plug. Um, We can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, Our website is animationhappyhour.com. On our website, we now actually have a tip jar active, uh, which is a place where you can donate to the pack. Uh, excuse me, where you can donate to the podcast and support us. Um, Putting on a podcast, it does cost money. We have to buy equipment. We have to host the podcasts online um so we appreciate your support his time (laughs) i can't tell you how much money we've thrown at him (laughs) we also newly have merchandise for a sale Um, you can find us on threadless (laughs) i think the website is animationhappyhour.threadless.com but there's also a link on our website Um, and lastly we have a mailing list so once a month on the 15th we send out episode reminders and a series of fun animation links uh and it's just a very simple quick little newsletter um curated by our very own katie lowe yes i promise i promise it's we should call it the lowdown. What are we the doing? Lowdown. Oh I don't know gosh. why we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> the animation. My dad lowdown. would be flattered. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I promise it's just it's a nice, fun little click sort of clickbaity, but cater to animation newsletter <laughs> where we'll send cool demo reels, cool new trailers. Yeah. Um and clickbaity but with substance. Yeah, behind we it. might you're being baited but you're happy. You yeah. I mean sometimes <laughs> we include job listings, which everyone wants ooh, to know about job listings. Ooh. Um and our special speakers or panel events that are coming up. So take a moment to visit our website and subscribe. Hello. Yes, please. So <laughs> beautiful. It's my favorite. I want you to edit that yes, please after like everything. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. So image finaling deals with the detail work. Yes, please. <laughs> you have to be detail oriented. Yes, please. <laughs> I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> You're like the actors of the movie. Yes, please. <laughs> what I'm putting this many podcast. Times as <laughs> that can be the last. No. Okay, because I made you the end of yeah, the last episode. Yeah. I can Which, do the yes, please. So I will say, even though I was a little self-conscious, I thought that was a it's beautiful funny. artistic yeah, little thing. And I commend you. you for it, Garrett. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> okay. Beautiful. All right. All right. So that about wraps it up for the episode, guys. This has been Garrett, Ben, and Katie. Thanks for listening and have.